Hello. My name is Kendall Ludwig, and I loathe election season. Don't misunderstand me. I love my country. I love democracy. I love that I live in a country that, as a woman, I even have the right to vote. I don't have to fear for my life to go vote. I appreciate all of those things. But for the next six months, I will be spending much of my time turning the radio dial, turning off the TV, um, avoiding so certain social media in hopes to avoid one less second of the hateful, fear-mongering, partisan bickering that will dominate the whole thing. And it's in my opinion that this is the worst time, you know, every time this comes around, this is the worst time to be an American because it brings out the absolute worst in people. And it showcases our superficial biases. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm going to read you a statistic in the 18 presidential elections between 1900 and 2011, 18 of the winning candidates have been taller than their opponents, while eight have been shorter and two have been of the same height. On average, the winner was one inch taller than the loser. There's a movie called The American President, maybe some of you have seen it, um, and in it, Michael Douglas plays the president, Andrew Shepard, and he's having a conversation with his chief of staff, who's also his best friend named AJ. And they're talking about him potentially entering into a romantic relationship. He's a widow. And potentially entering into this romantic relationship and what effect that would have on his approval rating. And AJ is very cautious about this being an election year, and do you really want to put your, open yourself up to personal attacks, et cetera. And AJ, the, the line that jumped out in my head was AJ says to the president, um, if there had been a television set in every living room, a man in, the in a wheelchair does not win the presidency. And I think one of the things that bothers me about election season is that it's never just about the person. It's never just about the issues. It's, do they look like a president? Whatever that means. Whatever that means to you. And it means something different to every person. But do they look presidential? Are they tall enough? Like, like does ultimately, does that even really matter? Does this sound familiar? If you've been studying the Bible at all, this might ring a few bells, this whole, does they look like a president? Are they tall enough to be a president? Perhaps that is if we go back to Samuel. Once there was a man named Samuel. He was a priest of the people of Israel. And as Jason talked about last week, um, God had given a commandment for the people to go into the promised land that God had given them and to completely destroy all the people that were living there. This was a, a land that was set aside for the people of God. They were supposed to go in and completely take over that land. And they kind of obeyed, not really did that. And because of that, they are now in constant battle with people surrounding them. There's people fighting for land and power, and they're just in constant wars and battles. And the elders come to Samuel. And this is in 1 Samuel 8, 4, if you want to follow along. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old 
and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. So what jumps out at me is, like all the other nations have. They are constantly in these battles with these other nations. They're seeing how the other nations do it. They see them all have these earthly kings, and they think, this is what's wrong with us. It's not that we didn't obey God. We just need a king to lead us, and then everything will be great. So Samuel, tell God. Samuel's kind of acting as the go-between between the people and God. Samuel, give us a king. Tell God to give us a king. And Samuel immediately comes back to the people and says, you don't know what you're asking for. A king is not what you think it's going to be. He's going to take the best of your sons and daughters. He's going to take the best of your livestock. He's going to take the best of your grain. And the elders come back and say, no, we don't care. We want a king. We want a king to lead over us. We want a king. We want a king. And as we know about God, if we ask him for something and we want something enough, he tends to love us enough to give it to us, even if it's not the best thing. So God appoints a king, and it's a king exactly as the people would have imagined. And we read in 1 Samuel 9, in verse 2, um, about a man named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So he looked like a king. He was big and bold and handsome and manly and kingly. And the people were very excited. Yes, this is what we want. We don't have really time to go through everything that Saul did and did not do. And he didn't, it wasn't like all of his rule was bad. But he definitely made a lot of poor choices. And he wasn't so great at obeying God and his commandments. And there's this really funny scene in 1 Samuel 15 where um, Saul is leading his people out to go battle the Amalekites. And God gave him very, very clear-cut instructions. I want you to go out, and I want you to completely destroy everything, all of the people, all of their things, completely destroy, completely, completely. This was not a gray area, black or white, completely destroy. Saul takes the people out. He goes. He goes into battle. He keeps the king alive, and he keeps all of the, live, all of the best of the livestock Now, that was kind of a traditional, I mean, that was fairly standard protocol for battles at this time, is that you often would keep the king alive, and you often would take the best of the plunder. But that wasn't what God asked him to do. He's selectively obeying, which is that was kind of his, that was kind of his rep. And so Samuel knows what's up. He's got a direct line to God. He knows what's going on. He goes to Saul, and I just think this is so funny because Saul is just, he doesn't even realize at the time, or maybe he's just like this, but he's going to completely defend his actions. Um, In 1 Samuel 15, verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord blessed you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And then Samuel says, then what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? Like, hello, Um, I can see that you didn't wipe out everything. I see the sheep right there. I see the cattle right there. And Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Yeah, okay. So that's why you kept them alive, to make the sacrifice. Got it. Um, But we totally destroyed the rest. 
Later, in verse 22, Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul clearly just did not get it. It was about obeying the Lord. That was the bottom line, and he couldn't do it. And later, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel says, the Lord has rejected you as king. The Lord's done with Saul. He starts raising up the next king. The first king was the king that the people wanted. The second king is the king that God wanted. Now Saul is still in charge at this moment in time. In fact, he's going to be king for many years to come. But after he falls out of God's grace, his rule becomes immediately much more turbulent and difficult. And Samuel is still kind of in the mindset that God's going to appoint another Saul. He's thinking, okay, so we've got another king coming up. He's probably going to be kind of like Saul. Let me, let me go find him. And God corrects him almost immediately. This is the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected Saul. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we first meet David, the king that that God has chosen, does anyone know what he was doing? My house church should know. Anyone know? He was taking care of sheep. He was the youngest of many brothers, so he was kind of at the bottom of the pecking order, and he was outside tending the sheep. We, We learned that he was kind of a small guy. He was still a handsome guy, But he was doing something that would require him to be outside. It would require him to be kind of smelly. Um, We hear the word shepherd, and we think of all these good things. We think of Jesus the good shepherd, and we think about the shepherds that were the first ones to hear the good news about Jesus' birth. But it really was a very lowly profession, you know? It wasn't glamorous. It required a lot of different skill sets. But, like I said, you're outside a lot. Uh, you were often not smelling so great. Um, you were alone a lot. I mean, it wasn't really so glamorous. And then, immediately after that happens, Samuel brings him in, and he goes through all the brothers, not this one, not this one, not this one, and God says, this is the one I want. And if you look at the cover of the bulletin, this is from the Brick Testament, if anyone knows the Brick Testament, um, this is Saul, um, Samuel anointing David. I just love the little logo people. They're so cute. Some of them are great because they have like beheading ones and there's like fake blood squirting out. It's awesome. You have to check it out. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, um, so he anoints him as the future king. But like I mentioned, he's not going to be king for a long time. So now David and his family are aware of his anointing, but it's not public knowledge yet. And no one would probably have suspected that this is going to be the guy who's going to follow Saul as the king. In the very next scene, we go back to Saul. And Saul is now in torment. He's fallen from the favor of God. And now he's being plagued by evil spirits. And his attendants suggest to him that perhaps some music might be soothing to drive the um, evil spirits from him. And who do they bring in? In enters David, who's also who's the master shepherd and is also a master harp player. So kind of a weird um, combination of gifts 
but he's able to come in and he immediately wins over the king by being able to play this harp beautifully and soothe the king. Let the Lord, this is in 1 Samuel 16, 16. Let the Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. It's kind of an interesting description of someone. To start with, he knows how to play the harp, but then to immediately follow that with, he's a brave man and a warrior. It's kind of like the person who was writing this book wants to really kind of grab our attention and say, this guy is well set up to be a king. We move on. And the, this is probably the scene that, you know, David is most well known for, is a, the battle against Goliath. And we see some of his skill sets coming into play, mainly his use of a slingshot and his, his power with his words. Um, and a slingshot, as we studied in our house church, is a very difficult uh, weapon to master. Um, you have to be extremely precise, but if you are good at it, it is very, very deadly, and it, you you know, it can be a very powerful weapon to use at his disposal. But what struck me about this passage when we studied it is what David says to Goliath. So we have the two um, armies on either side, on top of kind of a ridge here, and then there's a valley below. Goliath is here, and he's, he's challenging someone to come down and kill him. So you imagine David coming on down with his slingshot, and in 1 Samuel 17:45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's a pretty ballsy thing to say. He defeats Goliath, much to everyone's surprise. But again... I want you to remember, we ultimately, like when I was a kid in Sunday school and I heard this story, in my mind, he like immediately becomes king right after this. When in truth, not only does he not become king immediately, but then he gets to, um, you know, spend the next several years in a really fun way avoiding being killed by Saul. So when Saul kind of figures out that the Lord is with David and no longer with him and his jealousy starts flaring up, then he makes it his life's work to destroy David. So David basically spends like the next several years fleeing and hiding with the few followers that he's managed to kind of round up. Like I had mentioned, Saul's um, rest of his rule is very turbulent, and he essentially ends up, he gets his armor bearer to kill him. He essentially commits suicide at the very end of 1 Samuel after massive military setbacks. David still does not assume that he's immediately king. He waits, and he waits, and he waits on God's timing. And he grieves properly. He talks about Saul being the Lord's anointed. He has respect for the fact that God alone was the one that made Saul king, and that God has the power 
to do with what he wills with, with David and in his time. The people of Judah, which is the southern part of Israel, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, appoint David to be king. But there are people in the northern part of the kingdom that are still loyal to Saul and his family. So they make Ishboheth, which is one of Saul's sons, king over the northern section. And this is the first time we're seeing kind of a separation here. David does not become king of all of Israel until seven years later. So this is a long period of time. He's still trying to win over and convince people, because again, king normally goes father to son, convince people that God really has appointed him king. Once he does become king of all of Israel, he does a couple of really remarkable things. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital. He brings back the ark. Um, and God promises him rest from his enemies. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is coming through his prophet Nathan, this is what the Lord Almighty said. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth. And from this point, at this point, God is fully with David. He's giving him victories in his battles. Um, And David is using this power in a good way. He continues to obey God, and he um, is in constant communication with God. He even shows kindness to the house of Saul. So this um, man who basically tried to have him killed for the later part of his life, he goes and finds a descendant of Saul and shows him kindness. So it seems like an all-around great king for a little while. He's doing a really good job with the, with the role that God has given him. But maybe he's getting a little too big for his britches. Because then, Bathsheba. So without going into all of the juicy details, to summarize, he sees a woman that he wants. He finds out who she is. He finds out that she, does not belong, that she belongs to Uriah. She's Uriah's wife. He decides he wants her anyway. He goes, sends for her. He's with her. She gets pregnant. So now we have this massive scandal on our hands. When you we're reading the story, there's just all these opportunities for him to maybe make amends and do the right thing, but he continues to make bad decision after bad decision. He brings Uriah before him, who's serving in his own army. And he tries to convince Uriah to go home and be with his wife so that plausibly the pregnancy could be pinned on him and not on David. Uriah refuses while in the midst of being in this battle. He refuses to go home and be his wife. So then David brings him back again and gets him drunk, hoping that that will convince him to go home and be with his wife. And still Uriah is not having it. He is, doesn't feel right doing that when his fellow um, men in, in his army um, are sleeping outside of the gates of the castle, of the temple. So David talks to the, the chief officer of his army and basically sends Uriah to the front lines to have him killed. And we see this in... in it's just so startling because we're in the middle of, of David just being this great king and then this. 
And yet, almost just a, a little while later, Sheba does give birth to the child that she had with David, and that child dies. But David goes and comforts her. He makes her, her his wife. He goes and comforts her. And she gives birth to who? Solomon. In 2 Samuel 12, 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and when he went to her and made love to her, she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. So we see God carrying on his will even through the midst of this terrible sin. However, similarly to Saul, David's rule from this point on gets considerably more difficult. Even within his own children, we're talking like the next chapter, we're looking at incest and rape and terrible things that happen immediately after this. Through it all, David repents and he remains loyal to the Lord, and he gets to live to be an old man. He even gets to pass on the crown to Solomon himself. He wrote about half of the Psalms that we have, which is some of the most beautiful poetry ever written. I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm 103, which is one of the ones attributed to David. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is a few things that I'd like you to take away from this morning. David was fallible. He was human. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was still human. He was still susceptible to sin, and maybe the most susceptible to sin when things were really going his way. It tends to be when we have our guard down, doesn't it? Going back to how I open about election season, it's dangerous to put your hope and trust in earthly leaders for exactly this reason. Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those who whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. This election season, do your homework. Know your issues. Take peace in the fact that, like we read in Romans, the authorities that exist have been established by God. And don't be swayed by the circus. Secondly, God still accomplished his will even in David's sin. I think we look at David and we think, here's a man after God's own heart and even he couldn't get it together. What hope is there for me? But God did some amazing things through David. And my very, very favorite psalm, Psalm 51, I don't know if he could have written it if it hadn't been for Bathsheba. Have mercy 
on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When I was early in my business, I was fortunate enough to meet this woman who was a business coach. And she bought me lunch one day, and she wanted to hear a little bit more about what I had been doing and what I hadn't been doing, um, what my struggles were. And I shared with her that when I would go into networking events or meetings with clients, that I tended to have this fear that I wouldn't be taken seriously. And as I was speaking, she you know, I think one of her giftings is that she's extremely, um, she can really perceive the things that people aren't saying. She can read body language. She can read in between the lines of the words that are spoken and, and pick up on what's really going on. And after I finished sharing, she said, Kendall, it sounds like you have a lot of negative self-talk going on. And I'm, I asked her, I didn't know what she was talking about. I said, what do you mean? It's like, well, when you go into these events, you know, it sounds like what's going through your mind are, are, is one negative thought after another. And I'm thinking, like, is she peering into my brain right now? Because that's exactly what's happening. I'm, I'm going into these events, and I'm thinking, well, I'm really young, and I'm a woman, and there's like, it's like 90% male in here, and I don't play golf, and I don't really have a lot of experience, and who's going to take me seriously, and oh, what am I even doing here? And it would just run and run and run. And you know what? People pick up on that. Um, the fact that she could tell from the first time that we spoke, and even the way she had been observing me at a meeting that we had been at together, she said, it just comes off. You don't believe in yourself. You don't have that confidence going into it. You know, how are you going to expect people to hire you to do something for, you, for them if you don't believe that you can do a good job for them? And she challenged me to start replacing some of these things that I was saying, some of these negative things I was saying, with more positive but still true things. Oh, I'm so young. Yes, I'm young. And it brings a freshness to the way that I approach design. People will want to hire me because I have a new perspective on something. Yes, I'm a woman, and I don't look like most of the people in this room, and that's a good thing because I'm set apart, and people might want to figure out what I'm about because I, I'm just not another person in a suit. Uh, 
yeah, I don't have enough experience, but I'm a really hard worker and I want to get more experience. I'm going to do a really good job for you. And as soon as I started becoming aware of the negative things I was saying and replacing them with positive ones, it immediately affected the way that I held myself, the way that I would speak to people, the way that people perceived me. And it's not, it's not a self-help thing. It really is rooted in truth. And I think, you know, in the church, we're really good at focusing on the fact that we are broken sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And that is absolutely 100% true. And I'm not here to say anything otherwise. Except that if we stay there, if our internal monologue is filled with, I'm a sinner, I don't even know why God loves me, I don't even know why anyone else would love me, oh man, I just make such a muck of things, ugh, what am I doing, I don't know, I just keep screwing everything up, God gives me something, I just make a mess of it. If that's our internal monologue, God's going to have a really hard time accomplishing his will through us. If we stay in that place of brokenness and just being a sinner and that's all, that's all we have kind of running through our minds, it ultimately is not going to be the best way for us to serve the Lord. If we can take that and know that that's only the first piece of the truth, but that the full truth is that God loves us, he created us in his own image, that we are an image bearer of God, and that he has crafted a light for us, a path for us, that he has things he wants us to accomplish in him, if we can keep that full picture, I think it's a much healthier way to approach the world. It's a much better way to face obstacles. I guarantee you that when David walked down to face Goliath, he was not saying, oh, I'm just this little kid, and all I have is this slingshot, and hopefully I'll hit him, maybe. I'm pretty sure that was not what was going through his head, because when he speaks and opens his mouth, he unloads this just whipping on the Philistines. He couldn't have spoken with such authority and confidence unless he believed that God truly was with him, that God truly loved him, and that God wanted to accomplish great things through him. So I want to ask you, what sort of tape do you have running through your mind? Let's pray. Lord and Almighty King, you alone deserve our honor, and in you alone we place our trust. You know the depths of our hearts, and you love us the same. It's incredible that you can use our brokenness and do great things. We can't thank you enough for your mercy. Now let us be like David and be bold in the life to which you are calling us. Amen.